So let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll divide up into our groups. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have week after week of gathering together here as the body of Christ at Lakeside. Lord, we thank you for the blessings you've given us and the comfort and the nice facilities. Lord, I think of the different things that are exposed to this week of knowing the number of believers that don't have a place to meet or they meet under threat of persecution or they meet in very challenging circumstances. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are worshiping you today and we pray that you would meet them in their needs. And as you've blessed us, Lord, I pray that you would help us not um, squander your blessings, but help us to be purposeful and diligent in serving you here today. Help us have hearts that are attuned to your word and help us through the power of your spirit see the areas where we can apply the truths we learn in Sunday school and our main services to our own lives. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves still in 1 Peter chapter 2 as we've been covering a section that begins at verse 13 and continues through verse 17. It's taking us a little longer than expected because of the hurricane and the disruptions to our service, but we today, or I thought originally when I started preparing my notes that we might finish this section, then I started typing and we're not going to finish this section, so we should finish it next week. But I'm going to read the text again just to remind us of what's here. I'm going to give a very quick overview, much more cursory than I normally do. You can always find the prior teachings on the church website. All of them are recorded and they're placed on the website. And I can tell you where to find them if you want to go back and get more information. But the text that we're covering reads like this. Beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Over the course of the last few times that I've taught, we've covered the material in verses 13 to 15, and that's what I'm going to be summarizing I originally phrased this entire thing as a four-part outline, and so I'll just reiterate that as I summarize, but it's four aspects of living in God's will. Peter has transitioned in his book. He's given a lot of theology in the beginning portions of it, and there have been some cursory overview statements, be holy as God is holy, and to live appropriately. Now we're looking into specific details and specific areas of life. And so one of the first aspects of living in God's will that Peter focused on in verses 13 and 14 is that God's will is for his children to submit to every form of human government. God is commanding us to make ourselves submissive, not to fall in line when we're beaten into it, but rather to voluntarily place ourselves under whatever authority that is over us in a civil realm. All human authority comes from God anyway, and so as a result, our submission should not be as hard as it actually is. 
Peter gives sort of a summary of the role of government. He's not talking about the relative merits of a a monarchy versus some other form. In his society, there was a king referred to as an emperor. And then there were governors placed below him in the Roman system. And he's basically saying from top to bottom, you submit to all types of government. And we do it for the Lord's sake. Because of the Lord. We're not doing it because we like the government. We're not doing it because we're in favor of certain politicians. In fact, in Peter's time, as I covered, Nero was the emperor, the king, and he was more wicked than our five worst presidents put together, probably our ten worst. But the call of God, unless the government orders us to sin, is to submit. We don't have to like the government. We don't have to like the policies. That doesn't mean we forfeit our rights as citizens. But, by and large, our duty is to submit With the one exception, if the government said sin, we would not sin. And the reason we're supposed to live submissively is because our lives are on display to an unbelieving world. The second aspect of God's will, God's will is that our submission will convict unbelievers. God's will is that our submission will convict unbelievers. And this sort of has a tie-in to the principles of verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Because they're going to falsely accuse you. And Peter's reiterating that here. Verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Unbelievers are going to say bad things about Christians. If you don't want that to occur, you've got to live in a different world. If they insulted Jesus, if they abused him, they're going to abuse us. We'll be falsely accused of things, but by living quiet and submissive lives to the government, we will prove a lot of those lies to be that, lies. The idea is that our testimony of our lives, quiet submission, will be such that even the unbelievers at some point will be shut up. Now, the challenge for us is that certainly is not the reputation Christians have in America. We don't get into political issues, and we never will, but we have a reputation of loving Republicans, hating Democrats. We have a reputation of being complainers if things don't go our way. We have a reputation of being malcontents who are happy to post and complain and argue and bemoan everything. But our calling in our daily lives isn't to do all those things. It's just to be submissive. Even if the accusations are true about other people, they shouldn't be true of us. We, each one of us individually, should be trying to live quiet, submissive lives. The ultimate goal of our relationship with the government, besides being a testimony to unbelievers, is to be left alone. To be able to worship. To be able to do the things of the kingdom. Satan is going to oppose us. Unbelievers are going to oppose us. We should not antagonize and add to it by us sinfully being rebellious against the authorities that are over us. Humble submission for the Lord's sake to our government is imperative, and it is a witness to everyone around us. If you have unbelieving family members, if you have unbelieving co-workers, if you have unbelieving friends, you understand if you talk to them about Christians in the bigger sense, they'll say a lot of negative things. Our job is to prove through our individual lives that we're different. How we live out God's will in our earthly society as aliens and strangers matters. And it's a testimony. 
So that's a very quick and brief overview, more brief than I normally do. But if you want to have a framework for thinking about the next aspect, but it's the framework about this entire section, it's just think about it in a practical terms about your interactions of your neighbors, who your neighbors are. I thought about this yesterday. I was out mowing my yard and talking to my neighbor who's working on his truck. In your coworkers, in your workplace, your interactions with others, in your family, in business, in society. So four aspects of living in God's will. The third aspect, and that's where we are this morning, and this is where we're going to spend our time. God's will never leads us into sin. God's will never leads us into sin. And we're going to be camped out on verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. This verse involves an issue that I'm going to use a theological term in a little bit. But the verse is addressing something that is universal in the life of the church. It was a problem when the church started. It's a problem today. It's been a problem all the way in between. In fact, at first glance, the verse could just, you look at it and you move on. But I think as we break down the verse, you're going to see the implications for each one of us individually, but you also will think about the implications of those that you've interacted with over the years. Now, I teach from the New American Standard Version. So, the beginning clause says, act as free men. Your version may say something similar, live or act. But it's interesting because in the original language, there's not actually a verb there. It's not inappropriate for the way we talk, but this isn't really a command, this is a description. This is more about who we are, not what we're supposed to do. And Peter is saying that in Christ, we are free men. Now, at that time, I believe, because of the context of their society, this carried more of a powerful cultural reference than it necessarily does for us. Perhaps even in America's past, hundreds of years ago, it carried that force, but today, we sort of lose this sense. For us, everybody's free unless you're in prison. So we think that way. Everybody's free. We don't have slavery. But at the time of the writing of this letter, I'm not telling you anything that you've never heard of before. Slavery was a part of the fabric of society. The percentage of citizens in Rome who were slaves was staggering. And it was that way throughout the empire. And slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't so much a skin color issue like it was historically in America. It was just, who did we conquer? Now they're slaves. Now we got them. So slavery was rampant at that time. And whether someone was a slave or a free man was a critical issue in Roman society. Slaves had no rights. They were chattel. They were property. 
And as you read the New Testament, you see references to slavery over and over and over again. In fact, in the verses that we're going to cover after we finish this section, it's dealing with the actual institution of slavery and how actual slaves within the societal context of the time are to relate to their masters, their owners, in a Christian context. So when Peter is talking about this terminology and he uses these things, of course it's not an endorsement of slavery per se, it's just a reality of this is what the church had to deal with at that time. And there was a sense in which the social stratification of society could subconsciously carry over into the church and so in the New Testament there's complete obliteration of those distinctions For example, in Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul, in trying to show that things are different, said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So within the church, those boundaries were obliterated, but people were still citizens of society. So if you said you're a free man, it carried a certain weight. There was a significant societal tone in this language. And here's what's interesting. Some of the people that Peter is talking to as free men were actually slaves in society. That's the irony of it. They literally were slaves. They were owned. And yet in Christ they were free men. It was something radically different than anything they would have ever heard. So when Peter is saying act as free men, he's really describing them as free men, it it carried great weight. Because within Christ, within the church, things were different. Now, as I mentioned, the impact of this is minimized to great degree in America because of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And I went to law school, I had to look up which amendment it was. But it's the 13th Amendment. That's the one that outlawed slavery. Here's what the 13th Amendment reads. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or in any place subject to their jurisdiction. Very comprehensive. There can be no slavery at all in the United States or in any of the territories or anything that falls under our realm. So when you come to a verse like this that says, act as free men, the cultural weight of that statement to the original hearers is somewhat lost on us. But, theologically, it should not be. And I want to try, without manipulating anything, to help us think about this correctly. Because the ultimate point that he is making is significant. And it's going to impact our lives. I looked on the internet and there's a calculator. There are approximately 326 million people in the United States. As of yesterday. And there's a little ticker that keeps going every 12 seconds another person pops up. And I think the actual number was 325 million, 900 and something thousand. Every single one of those people is a slave. 326 million people in America, every single one of them is a slave. Well, wait a minute, you just read the 13th Amendment. We have to think theologically 
Jesus and talking to the Jewish leaders and having a dialogue address this very issue, this notion of freedom. And the Jewish people, despite the actual history, were pretending as though they had never been enslaved, even though they had been repeatedly. In John 8, and 34, it says this, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Historically not true. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, verse 34 of John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every unbeliever is a slave to sin, to darkness, to their flesh. In fact, the way the Bible phrases things is that all unbelievers are in bondage to Satan. Acts 26, verses 18, the first part, says in part of what the gospel is doing, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. First part of Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness. So you look around us in our society and every unbeliever is a slave. But here's the kicker. So are believers. It's who's your master. Jesus said in John 8.36, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery, meaning to the flesh. Here's the point. We have been granted freedom from all the evil passions that enslaved us, from the darkness to which we were bound. That's the beauty of being in Christ. But what Peter is addressing is this notion that now that I'm free from that, I am autonomous, I can do what I want. That's what has always crept up in the church. From the time of the writing of the New Testament to today. I'm free, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. That is not God's will. We're freed from wicked bondage. But when we're freed, we're still slaves just to the Master. In terms of our behavior in Romans chapter 6, and there are countless references I could go to, but I'll give you the reference. Romans 6, 16 to 18, if you want to look it up later. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.22 explains how that's even possible. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. 
Now here's the interesting part. If we're slaves to God, then why is He calling us free men? It's because we are free. It's the nature of the freedom we have. We're freed from having to obey sin. We're free from being enslaved to the lust of our flesh. We struggle against them, we fight against them, we stumble and fall, but we are not, if we know Christ, enslaved to them without any recourse. That's the danger at times, the way Christians talk about habitual sins as though, well, now I don't have any choice because it's become a habit. That's not true, theologically. Certainly there are physiological impacts of certain drugs and things like that that can have residual effects. But the fact remains, if you know Christ, you are freed from the requirement that you obey the flesh. Peter is simply declaring that we are free men. He's not proving it, he's declaring it. This is true. In fact, he's already said something along these lines. If you look back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, he says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our freedom means we can actually live holy. We have the ability now, because of our freedom from sin, to live obediently. We can comply with God's law, not because we're condemned if we don't, but rather because we love our Savior who has given us the freedom to obey. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, everything I've summarized with that little clause, act as free men, should make us rejoice. We're freed from Satan. We're freed from the bondage of sin. We're freed from the condemnation that accompanied our wickedness. One of the most profound verses, I think, in my early Christian days that I used to reflect on that was miraculous to me then, it's still miraculous now, is Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Because it really describes our freedom in one sense. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I can hear the nails. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There can't be better news. There can't be anything better. I'm disappointed that I'm going to be leaving town this afternoon to go to a conference. I'm going to miss communion tonight because that's when we remember but here's the challenge, and it's always existed. Rather than rejoicing in and resting in that truth 
of that type of freedom, there have always been people who have been tempted to pervert that truth. That's what Peter is addressing. Peter says this in verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. It's one of those things where you marvel that this kind of instruction is even given in the New Testament. Because there are times where we think, well, wait a minute, of course. What do you mean use my freedom as a covering for evil? There's a theological term that's existed for a long time. In English, the word is antinomianism. It's a long word, but it basically means, in essence, sort of against the law. And there have been people who have taught in churches from the beginning of the church, and it continues today, the idea of this. Now that you're free, there are no rules. We don't have to follow any laws. They confuse the reality that the Old Testament ceremonial laws of sacrifices and all those things, those are done away with, and they say, so now you can do anything. We spent a lifetime in Hebrews. Hebrews is all about the fact that Jesus is different. The old law is gone. You don't need all those things. You don't need the animal sacrifices. You don't need the blood of bulls and goats. You don't need all of that because you have the perfect sacrifice in Christ. But some took that and said, so now, live it up. Hey, if there's no condemnation, if all the sins are already paid for, well, then I'll just send some more. Even though that's obviously contrary to Scripture, for some reason that thought has always been popular. It's interesting, it's hard to fathom that that could be the case because if you look even at the Great Commission, there's a neglected part of this. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people stop right there. But that's not all the Great Commission. The next part, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It's incomprehensible that anybody would come to the New Testament and say, well, there's no rules anymore, and yet it's always been the case, and there is that type of teaching in America today. So that fancy word is really a fallacy. There are commands for us to follow. And Peter wants to make clear the same people he's told, you be holy for God is holy, that they don't start hiding behind freedom to justify and cover up sin. Paul had a similar warning, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here's what's being made clear across the board. We're not free in Christ to go on sinning and rejoicing in our sin. With the idea, God doesn't care, I'm good. It's evil and vile and wrong. Now, each one of us struggles with sin. If you hate your sin, praise the Lord. You're not in danger of doing what Peter talked about. But a 
couple of the warnings in Hebrews go so far as to talk about apostasy. And part of apostasy is you've heard the gospel, you've heard the truth, and you just still walk away. The Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So back at our text, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. We are free, but Peter's saying we can't pervert our freedom. The idea of covering is of a veil or like a cover. You just picture like a blanket you would lay over a table and you couldn't see it. The point is we can't abuse and distort our freedom in Christ to cover up and justify our sin and pretend like it's not evil, which it is. Again, I want to be clear. You know, there's a lot of false guilt in Christianity and there's some genuine spirit-driven guilt that we should not run away from. Every genuine believer still sins. I hate that in myself. I'm sure you hate it in yourself. I hate my sin. Apart from seeing Jesus face to face, the greatest part in my mind about heaven is I won't be sinning anymore. I can't wait. And I won't be fighting temptation. I won't be struggling. But the daily fight against sin isn't what Peter's talking about. It's that notion that says, well, this doesn't matter. It's okay. In fact, in some respects, people would even encourage other people to sin. Now, there's a few biblical examples of leaders doing that. So, for example, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was saying goodbye to a group of elders, he said, I know Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Romans 16, 17 and 18 addresses something similar. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It grieves me that anybody that comes and listens to Pastor Steve teach week after week and year after year could be gullible, but we have gullible people at Lakeside. I know because I hear what they're listening to sometimes. And I hear them talk about certain authors that they shouldn't be talking about in a positive way. We've got to be careful because in America, our entire economy is built on smooth and flattering speech. How many times have you suddenly found yourself thinking, yeah, I need one of those, and you don't? Because it's smooth and flattering speech. I used to make a living on smooth and flattering speech in the legal realm. Who's the smoothest and who can talk in the most flattering way wins cases it's happening in churches around us all the time it's why you should be Bereans with what I teach it's why you should be Bereans with what Pastor Steve teaches or whether anyone else teaches and we as elders welcome you to hold us accountable to the word because if you're doing that you're going to spot that type of false teaching that tells believers in this day and age, hey, sin is not really what you think it is. Look at those verses in the Bible. They don't really mean that. No, no, no. you got freedom to do that. Just phew, 
you don't understand this correctly. Churches throughout America, including in our own community, people are openly living in sin, professing to be Christians, and their churches and their leadership are not confronting them as they should in Matthew 18, but they're saying, way to go. Good job. You're fine. God doesn't really care. Obviously, that's wrong. That's not what salvation is supposed to do. That type of thinking is actually the very opposite of freedom. Those people aren't acting as free men. They're enslaved again to the things that Christ died to free them from. Believers should never be using their freedom to willfully and unapologetically continue in sin. Period. We struggle, we fight, but we have to recognize who our master is. Back in verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. How should you use it? But use it as bond slaves of God. That's who we are. We're slaves of the Most High King. We're now free in Christ to truly serve the Lord. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17 says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Remember, it's the slavery to sin that we're freed from. That's not what we're saved into. Now we serve the Master in Heaven. Colossians 4.1 refers, in talking to true slave owners, literal slave owners, says, Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a Master in Heaven. Again, this isn't calling us to live in grudging submission with sackcloths and ashes, walking around going, boy, I used to have fun, but now I'm a Christian. Can't believe it. I love Jesus. <laughs> Gotta go to church. No, we should willingly embrace our status as servants of the Most High God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's really what Peter's telling us to do. And in the context of the immediate verses around us, certainly that includes being willing to submit to our government. The freedom we have in Christ isn't freedom from the United States government or from the government of Pinellas County, or from the government of the state of Florida. In fact, I see Christians at times when the law does not require them to sin, saying, hey, it doesn't bind me. I'll do what I want, because I'm free. I serve the Lord. Well, the Lord's the one that put you under those laws. So be careful. Be careful with any idea that says, I'm going to just show the government. No. 
you and I are slaves, but we're slaves of the Lord. So let me encourage you. We obey His commandments with our freedom. We serve Him with our freedom and recognize that we submit to the government of the United States, regardless of who's in office, regardless of who's the president, because we're slaves of the Most High God. Let me close our time this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you help me live out the truths that I'm teaching, and I do pray for everyone who's hearing this. Lord, help us to truly live as free men in the right sense. You have freed us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be your sons and daughters. And yet, Lord, we struggle to obey your word. And Lord, for many of us, we have a particular struggle to obey your word in the idea of submitting to a government when we don't like their policies We don't like their trajectory. We don't like the things they're doing. And we don't like the people who are staffing the government. Lord, help us understand that using our freedom in part means willingly submitting, as you've called us to do. Everything about our lives is a testimony of whether we love you and whether we follow you. So I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts so that we don't cover up evil by saying we're Christians, but rather we live submissive to you in everything. Lord, we love you. Help us to obey your commandments, including in the area of submission to government. Lord, we thank you that you freed us from slavery. We thank you that you've turned our hearts from sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us examine ourselves also, though. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't truly know you, I pray that you'd prick their conscience today. Jesus Christ died for sinners. I pray that you would open any unbelieving hearts by the power of your Spirit and draw unbelievers to the cross. Help deliver them from the slavery that may still be entrapping them. And bring them to Christ. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.